start off, we like to celebrate with people. And, uh, well, it, I did not see Is Emma Crawford here? Ah. Wait, that was Emma. Was that Emma? Oh, sure. Emma Crawford got engaged to Jacob Kins. We're just going to acknowledge it even though she's not here. Truly what we call an RUF power couple. We're very, we're very proud of them. So. Okay, uh, if you have your Bibles, you can open to Exodus 20 or you can look on the back of your sheet. We're trying to hold out before you every week that the Ten Commandments, they're not random rules. They actually hold out a picture of the beautiful life you were made for. And what I want you to think about is there is, let's be honest, a a very tough stumbling block, uh, and maybe even if you're here, this is you, to Christianity. And that stumbling block has to do with uh, some of the great evil that Christians in the church has done. And some of you have personally experienced horrible things that Christians have done. And that can span from slavery to murder to racism. You really can't attribute that stuff to Christians. And as strange as this might sound, the Bible actually leads you to believe that you should expect that. Uh, that our sin is, and evil and selfishness is a lot worse than we think. So I acknowledge that with great shame, but as you struggle with that question, I do want to offer, offer a thought to you. Without dismissing everything that was previously said, would you dare to examine the fact that the world might actually be a better place because of Christians? Would you think about that? Would you be honest? Because I think if you look at history, what you'll find is that since the beginning of the church, you can even see this in the Roman Empire, Christians have always been on the forefront of battles against slavery, sexism, uh, child labor, even, even the gladiator battles. The Roman Emperor, we have this recorded, was confounded by the way that Christians not only took care of their own poor, but the poor of pagans. And look around, it's still true today. Things like the Salvation Army and Alcoholics Anonymous, all these things that are, that are pushing into reforming society, have their roots in Christianity. Even today, Forbes magazine says that 8 out of the top 10 charitable organizations in the United States have their roots in Christianity. And have you ever thought about the fact that the primary force behind hospitals was Christians? Mainly Christians stayed around in the city of Corinth in the 3rd in the century when the plague was coming through and was caring for people who had been cast out of their house. And monks turned their, turned their uh, sanctuaries into hospitals to care for the poor and the outcast and the sick. And if you look around, most of the major hospitals do have church or Christian names attached to them. I just give you that information to maybe make you curious to ask why. Why are Christians, not always, but normally at the forefront of tending to the sick, caring for the poor, and alleviating suffering? I want to suggest it's because of this commandment. The sixth commandment, yes, it forbids murder, but it also holds out the beauty and value of human life in such a way that you see the beauty of God and it calls us to care for each other in astounding ways. So think about that. Let me pray. Father, would you um, be with us tonight as we look at your word? We especially tonight need to know that your words are life. We, um, we come in this auditorium uh, from various places. Many of us are ashamed of what our week has looked like. Many of us are uh, tired. Uh, many of us are confused. 
And so, Lord, would you bring life uh, to the dead? Would you bring rest to the weary? Would you bring forgiveness and that reality to, to us that think that, we, that there's no way? And so would you cover us in your grace by your word? In your son's name I pray. Amen. All right, here, Exodus 20, 1, 2, and then verse 13. And God spoke all these words, saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of Egypt, I mean, out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall not murder. That's copy Wilson last week. This is God's words of life given to you because he loves you. Okay, three things. We're going to see the beauty and value of life. We're going to see the taking or giving of life and then the hope of life. First, the beauty and value of life. The great majority of people in the world would agree, I think, that, that uh, murder is wrong, that it's evil. But I want you to see that Christianity actually offers a unique reason of why murder is wrong. And it's bound up in the inherent value of human life. In Genesis 9, we didn't read this, but it's there. You see this. You see that the Lord takes the shedding of blood very seriously. Why? Because God made man in his image. And the appreciation of what it means to be made in someone's image, at least for me, it enhanced in having children. I still remember the day that Shelby came home from preschool, uh, very sad and hurt. And I asked her what was wrong. And, and she said, little Johnny, and I'm changing his name to protect the innocent. Um, <laughs> she said, Johnny, on the playground, told her that, she, that he never wanted to be friends with her again. I know, I know. And the grand screen of things, right, that's not that big of a deal. But it's hard to describe, like, what went on within me and, like, the sadness that I felt. And, and what I've begun to realize is that's because Shelby's my image. Look, we are deeply connected in such a way that, I don't know how to explain, but the way that you treat Shelby, it's just kind of the way that you treat me. It can't be separated. And see, God is saying that every human being has incalculable value. Because whether you believe in God or not, you've been specially created and fashioned in His image. There is amazing value to every single individual, regardless of gender, class, race. Use all the terms sexual orientation. It doesn't matter. We are made in God's image. And it's not crazy to say that every attack on human life is actually an attack on God. And to degrade the life of a human is to degrade God. It's personal. I don't know anyone that says it better than C.S. Lewis. I have this quote uh, on your handout. Look what, listen, look what he says. It's a serious thing to live in a society of immortals. To remember that millions of years from now, the dullest and most uninteresting person you meet may one day be an incredible creature. If you saw him now, you'd be strain, strongly tempted to worship. Or a horror as you'd only now meet in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degrees helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. Is therefore, in light of these overwhelming possibilities, is with the proper amount of awe and circumspection that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to our life as the life of a gnat. It is immortals with whom we joke, work, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors are everlasting splendors. Your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. And did you hear that? Your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. I want you to feel the weight of this. 
And it really needs to change, I think, the way that we normally evaluate the Christian life. Because the way that we normally, I think the way that you, you and I normally measure our spiritual life is by a myriad of rules that we kind of made up that centered around like, and these are good things, but how long and how frequent you have quiet times, how much you read your Bible, how involved you are with campus ministries, where you go on Friday nights or what you don't or where you don't go. I just want to hear you hear I want you to hear me say this. The Bible places much more emphasis on the barometer of your spiritual life, on whether the fact that you are loving, valuing, caring for, forgiving, and serving people in your life. That's the barometer. That's what he's going after. So first, I really do, I want you to see the beauty of this command on the incalculable value of all human life. Because it's made in God's image. But look at how the reality uh, kind of begins to flesh out. This is, we're going to kind of dive into the command. The sixth commandment says, because humans are so valuable, we are absolutely forbidden from anything that degrades the value of a person's life. But remember, this is important. You're going to see even Jesus does this in Matthew. He doesn't just give you the negative. He also says you've got to be a peacemaker. Because we've talked about this. Whatever the commandment forbids, it by definition commands the opposite. So the sixth commandment is also commanding us to positively treat people according to their incalculable value. So absence of murder does not fulfill the command. There must be a positive loving. A seeking after people. Because see, the the idea of neutrality is not in your Bible. You You either are giving, serving, caring for, and enhancing the lives of people and being a blessing to them, or we're degrading, hurting, and destroying the lives of people. We're just always moving in one of those two directions. So what does this look like then? What does this commandment look like fleshed out in our life? Well, of course... The ultimate expression of degrading the value of a person is the actual act of murder, where the life is taken. But Jesus, the Son of God, Matthew 5, what Caitlin read for us, he comes along and he shows that the commandment goes all the way to our heart. And it exposes us. Right? The law's first job is to convince us that we are a lot worse than we think. So that our only hope is Jesus. But he shows us that actually murder goes on in the heart, in our attitudes, and in words. And so first, look at the heart. Jesus basically says you commit murder in the heart when you're angry with your brother. And I admit that that like sounds over the top. He is not saying anger in your heart is as bad as actually committing murder, okay? Sometimes that's said, and that's actually, un- that is, that's actually unhelpful. All sins are not equal, okay? But what he is saying, it is, it is breaking the sixth commandment. Because follow what he's saying. He's saying when you're angry, when, you're, when you have hatred for a person, you are degrading that person's value. How? Well, typically, I get angry with somebody when they get in the way, when they block something that I think I really need for life. And so think about it. If, if, you, if what you need is to, get a, is to get a bunch of important stuff accomplished today, and a human life gets in the way of that because their problems or their needy or or their carelessness, you get angry. You get very angry. And then what happens? You no longer see that person as a valuable image bearer. That person's now just become an obstacle. 
a barrier to what you really want, which is accomplishment. And therefore what? That person just needs to get out of the way. And there it is. What's going on in the heart is that there is a belief that things would be better if that person was out of the picture today. And see, Jesus is saying the full outwork of that anger, that attitude, that wanting the person out of the picture, that is murder. The beginning of murder starts in the heart. It's the same principle. And so you see, murder flows out of an angry and envious heart. Because the angry heart says, I wish that person didn't exist. And the envious heart says, I want to replace that person. That person has what I want. I want his life. I should have it. And what Jesus just revealed, I think, is something incredible. The sixth commandment shows you what you worship. It really does. The sixth commandment will show you what you cling to and what I cling to for security and to make sense of life. Just look at what what really makes you angry and you'll find an idol. Because the principle is anytime a human life gets in the way of what you think that you need in the way of an idol, we dehumanize the person. We despise them. We degrade them. So if you find yourself constantly irritated with people that don't agree with you, it's because they're blocking your desperate need to always be right. And you just need to see that. If you find yourself angry with people who don't like you, it's probably because you desperately cling to people's approval. And they've gotten in the way of that. If you need to feel righteous all the time, you will be angry at people who expose your sin. It really does expose us and our attitude. Secondly, Jesus moves on to our words. He points to insults and the poison of our words. This, this is where I just want to hide, Okay. Because Jesus in another verse says that out of the abundance of your heart does your mouth speak. Here's what's so convicting. The easiest way to know what you think about somebody is just watch the words that come out of your mouth. And so we can degrade life in how we speak. Anytime we communicate with words that you're not wanted, that you're not welcome, that's the heart of murder. That's it coming out. It's degrading. And that can look like insults. It can look like uh, being catty. Or it can simply look like using conversation in such a way that makes sure those people feel on the outside. That's it. It's pushing people out. It's the outworking of an angry or envious heart. And this is where... Look, I know everybody in the room could point to me, okay? I'm not surprised, but this is where the sarcasm and innocent joke isn't so innocent. Because in those things, what happens is we take the image of God and we reduce that person to just a platform for a joke. And it's degrading the image of God to an object for a cheap laugh. And it's belittling. And it really is the seed of murder. So Jesus is saying, any time we use words to hurt, to belittle, to exclude, it is murder with words. And I think it's fascinating that even our culture realizes that. We use language of violence to describe what happens. That he cut her down, right? Uh, 
that you tore someone apart. That's the image of violence. We know it's true. But the opposite of true is true as well. This is a call to treat people according to the value of who they are because they're made in God's image with words. That means we're called to speak words that actually give life and encouragement and not take it away. And does it not feel strangely, we'll say it, life-giving when someone genuinely says, I'm so glad that you're here? It feels life-giving because it is. We're called to speak words of welcome and want and encouragement and care. And I would just ask you, how many times have you, how many times have I, this semester, taken the time to actually think about and contemplate and gather up words of life and give them to someone for no other reason to encourage them and to let them know how valuable they are? That's what we're called to do. And invite people into friendships. Some of you might remember the story from Winter Conference. Richard Weiss told this story about this guy that he read about in his magazine. It was about Steve. True story. He was a manager. And finally, after, um, he, after, after years being a manager, he decided that he needed to go visit all six of his employees face-to-face and tell them how much he appreciated them and name one thing that they did really well. And so over a couple of weeks, he, he just did that. He went and found his employees all over, actually, uh, the country and, and talked to them. And a little bit later, he received a present from one of his employees named Lenny, which kind of shocked him. But what shocked him even more was the note that came with it. And what he began to discover was this. Lenny began to tell him how, how for months before, he had been considering ending his life. His mom had died, he was lonely, he was depressed, and so he'd actually bought a 9 millimeter. And for the past month, he'd actually gone through the same routine of going home, being lonely, eating dinner, and taking out the gun and putting it to his head. He said over the last few weeks, he got incredibly close to actually pulling the trigger. And then Lenny said this in his letter, But Steve, last week, you freaked me out. You came and saw me and you put your arm around me and told me that you appreciated me because I turned my projects in on time and that made your life easier. And you told me that I had a great sense of humor and that you were glad I was in your life. He said, that night I went home and I pulled out the gun and it freaked me out. And so the next day I went and I sold it to the pawn shop and I bought you this Xbox with that money because I, I remember you saying that you really wanted an Xbox. <laughs> But you couldn't afford it because of how much your new baby cost. Thanks, boss. That's a true story. That's it. Like, these are real words of life and hope that you bring to people. Are there words that take away life? And lastly, we can murder with our actions without the act of murder. One of the things that the Lord says, I have this on your handout too, that is an abomination to the Lord is haughty eyes. Haughty eyes are arrogant. Haughty eyes is that look that communicates, I'm better than you, and you're below me. And see, that is the language of putting down, of degrading. And so, I, look, I, anybody can do this, okay? I'm just going to take a shot. This is going to sound way too gender simplistic, but I'm just going to say this. 
Ladies, you're incredibly skilled at giving the look and the impression that heaps on shame and lets, and lets people know that they're out. You're just good at it. And those eyes of disapproval, those eyes that cut people out, it's the outworking of angerous, anger or envious murder within you. And it can be subtle like that, or it can be visible when we just stop friendships. When we communicate, I'm done with you, and, I'm, and you cut them out of your friend group. It's, that is putting away the image of God. But see the beauty of this command. You know this beauty. This is calling for actions that actually bless others. That actually welcome others. That acknowledge the inherent dignity of everyone. So when you forgive someone who hurts you, it brings life. Because that is absorbing the pain that's been done to you and not making somebody else pay for it. That's life-giving. When you give someone a look of welcome and a hug that says, I'm so happy that you're here, it feels life-giving because it is. And when you meet somebody that's hurting and that's ashamed for what, I don't know, for what their week looked like, and you meet that with compassion and tenderness and listening, it's life-giving. When someone feels like they have the eyes of approval from you, that's it. And it can even move out to the communal level, right? Much of society in this world just recognizes it assigns value according to ability. And therefore, many of us in society itself, you know it pushes to the edges? It pushes the, to the edges people that can't offer anything. It pushes to the edges the elderly, the poor, and even the disabled sometimes. And Christians are supposed to be those who say no. Those are the people we love and serve and care for. And I would just beg you, as RUF, if you're a Christian, man, make this place a welcoming place. Make this, pe- make this place a place that people like feel like they're wanted. It's huge. Because that's the beauty and the value. That's how hopefully we've seen how deep this command actually goes and it, it exposes us. So where's the hope, right? We, we need some hope. Um, hopefully, if you've had any sort of honesty, you, you've just been exposed. And it, in the South, in the South especially, and I love the South, we are very skilled at taking murder and hatred in niceness. We're just good at it. And it never gets transformed into love. And listen to the words of Jesus. He says, I don't enjoy saying this stuff, that makes us liable to the hell of fire. So where's the hope? Where's the hope that will actually heal us and, and, and then enable us to begin loving people instead of destroying people? Well, what about if it's true? What about if what I've been holding out for you every week really is true, that these commandments aren't random, they're actually the expression of the beautiful life because they're an expression of the beautiful one, God. That's why the Ten Commandments are the Ten Commandments. They're a window into the character of God. And after thinking through the value of human life, wouldn't, wouldn't the most astounding expression of valuing human life be if someone could actually welcome people in who were, un, who were actually worthy of exclusion? Wouldn't the most astounding picture of, of valuing human life be if someone looked at people who are worthy of scorn and worthy of rejection and dis- disapproval and gives you eyes of acceptance 
and compassion and joy. Wouldn't it be incredible if someone could bring life to people who are worthy of death and brought blessing to people that actually destroyed it? Wouldn't that be astounding? Wouldn't that be good news? Get ready. That person exists. That person 2,000 years ago showed up and walked this earth because the sixth commandment is perfectly embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. And he came to this earth and he took on our image. And because of our anger, when he saw our murderous hearts and our words and our actions, he said, I'm not coming to destroy, I'm coming to bless. I'm not coming to judge, I'm coming to save. And how did humanity respond to Jesus? They killed him. The only perfect innocent man to ever live, his blood is shed on the cross. It was an act of murder. Why? Because it's the only way to bring peace and life and forgiveness and healing to people like us who are worthy of destruction. Jesus on the cross, it's incredible, the author of life. The giver of life becomes liable to hell and dies. Why? Because he's taking my place. Because my sin goes on him, and as he's wearing my sin, it kills him. That's how much the Lord of this universe values life. He goes to the cross to save it. And then three days later, he comes out of the grave and is resurrected and destroys death. And gives eternal life. It reminds me of the story I read a long time ago about this lady who, who, was, who was married and had never told her husband about an abortion that she had had back in college. And for various reasons, there, there began to be this gnawing, gnawing guilt. And she went and saw her pastor and, and just started crying and said, I just, I've never told anybody. I don't think I can ever tell my husband. So the pastor just talked through the grace of Jesus Christ and how Jesus removes our sins as far as they are from the east as from the west. As she experienced that, she finally looked at her pastor and said, okay, I can do it. I can tell my husband about, about my abortion. And her pastor looked at her, smiled and said, what abortion? And then she smiled because she got it. He was representing Jesus. That's what happens. Jesus offers you real life. When we acknowledge our shame and and that we're unworthy of His love and we turn to Him, we turn to Him with our abortions, we turn to Him with our hatred, we turn to Him with our killing words and we think there's no way I can come to Him with this stuff. And He looks at us and says, what stuff? What stuff? And He does not destroy you and He does not shame you because He destroyed Jesus. And he shamed Jesus in your place. And so when you bring your sin to Jesus, guess what? There is no look of disappointment from your father. None. There's just a look of delight and approval and eternal welcome. He's not ashamed of you. He's not. He took your shame 2,000 years ago on the cross. God the Father is pleased with you. And you stand in Jesus' work. In Jesus, hear me, you will never, ever, ever get a look of disapproval. Ever. 
I don't care if you did that for the thousandth time and you're a Christian. I don't care if you turn to him while you're looking at pornography. You will not get a look of disapproval. He can't give it to you. It's always a look of welcome. Because you're in Christ. It's sheer grace. And it never runs out. And that reality, that reality begins to change you. Because you are so loved that it actually enables you to be a blessing to others. So that when people are your enemies, you actually see yourself in them. And you see that Jesus came after you and laid aside his glory and purchased you. And so now you begin to lay down your life for people. And you seek to bless people through sacrifice and forgiveness and mercy because you're at peace with the God of this universe. And you can put down your murderous weapons. You can do it. So I, I, I will end by I'm pleading with you tonight to see that Jesus offers you real life. Jesus, the fulfillment of this can, Jesus excludes no one who wants to come to him. No one. If you will come and just receive grace, the only people who are excluded are those who choose death. That's it. If you turn to him with your shame, with your life, with your brokenness, with the wreckage and damage that we've inflicted on people, you get a cosmic welcome that never stops. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, I pray, Lord, that tonight would be words of life for us. I pray that some, for the first time some of us would be convinced, condemned, convinced finally that you are much more, much more about right now, saving than condemning. With that free us to turn to you with our junk, with our murderous hearts, and trust that you will receive us because Jesus died in our place and gave us his righteousness. Lord, would you make us, would you make us a group that actually blesses this campus through sacrifice and through love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing one more.